All right. Well, tonight um, we are looking at uh, the second temple. And uh, you, you see there the title, No One's Home. It's kind of a, an omen of, of what the, pretty much the theme of this second temple. So um, uh, we, uh, this story covers a lot of ground. Basically, this goes from uh, the opening of Ezra uh, there in the Old Testament all the way through through past all the New Testament writings, all the way uh, through to about A.D. 70, which is the destruction of Herod's temple in Jerusalem by the Romans. And so this, you know, this time span covers a lot of ground. And so what I'm planning on doing tonight is um, just kind of running through some of these facts and figures because, you know, these facts are interesting, but they don't necessarily grow our faith. Um, but then we'll kind of camp out on a few little details that will, will hopefully uh, encourage us. And then I want to show you off some, some things that are interesting that uh, I learned while I was there in Jerusalem uh, that kind of has to do with this. And so Second Temple, Facts and Figures. Uh, the temple rebuilding was begun by Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. This is found in, in Ezra uh, chapter 1. Let's see if I can find my spot here. Ezra chapter 1. Uh, verses 2 through 4 talks about it. it says this Cyrus king of Persia the Lord uh, this says Cyrus king of Persia the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah Judah whoever's among you of all his people may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord at the God of Israel he he is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Um, so that's kind of how uh, how the story begins. But we also pick up in Haggai. Uh, he talks a little bit about it. Haggai chapter 1, uh, verse 3 says, The word of the Lord came uh, by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins, now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you have never your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns a wage does so to put him into a bag with holes. And so um, he, he calls out the Israelites and says it's time to build a house. In verse 12, it says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Joshua, the son of Zeodiac, the high priest, um, obeyed the words of the Lord. And uh, so they went up to build the, the temple. So 538 is whenever this all began. It's when the Zerubbabel goes out to rebuild the temple. But along mm. the way, and what this passage here in Haggai kind of alludes to is that the people get distracted. You know, they leave, they go back to Jerusalem, and they start building the temple. But after a couple of years, uh, they start thinking, well, I need a house and I need some vineyards and stuff like that. So they start building their own buildings, their own places. And... Um, if you just look at the time frame that's mentioned in the scripture, the uh, uh, there's a gap of about 16 years where nothing happens on the temple while they are uh, rebuilding their own properties. And so once Haggai gets this command from God and goes and tells them to get back to work, um, then uh, they get back to work. And so I uh, don't know for sure, but it takes at least 18 years uh, for them to rebuild the rebuild the temple. Um, the one interesting thing is the second temple is 60 cubits smaller than the original temple and not nearly as magnificent. So we don't know if that's 60, you know, wide, tall, long, or combination of any of those. But um, apparently from, uh, from writings in Josephus, the Jewish historian, the Persian king gave the order, gave the command that the temple had to be built smaller than Solomon's temple. Maybe just to sort of remind them that we're in charge now, you know, 
you're not going to be as grand as you once were. Just to, you know, so they would kind of have that in their mind. Um, so, it, so it is smaller. Um, there are some significant differences between the tabernacle, uh, Solomon's temple, and the second temple in the. Uh, and I left this out. This is supposed to be the end of the sentence here. Um, in the descriptions uh, in the Old Testament. So that point there. Significant differences between the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and the second temple in the descriptions of how they're described in the Old Testament. You remember whenever we talked about the tabernacle, um, the, like the, the last third of Exodus is all about how to build the tabernacle and then the building of the tabernacle. So there was a lot of space and a lot of paper written, or papyrus, whichever, written on the tabernacle and how to, to build it. When you get to Solomon's temple, we remember God didn't really have any input in how that was built, but there's still a lot of pages written, a lot of chapters written about the temple, about how to build it, and um, about how Solomon went about building it. Whenever you get to um, the uh, the second, temp second temple, there are only 22 verses. Uh, the construction is not greatly emphasized. Sorry, that's that, that blank there. So the construction on the second temple is not really emphasized at all. Um, there's some other things that are emphasized. So the construction is not greatly emphasized like it was in the other two. And there's only 22 verses and all of Ezra and all of Haggai that even talk about the building of the second temple. And so there's not a grand emphasis um, on this project at all in the scripture. And whenever God was in charge, man, tons of stuff was uh, written down and commanded about it. When Solomon was building it for God's glory initially, still quite a bit there, even though it wasn't from God. But now that this is coming about, um, there's just not much there. So only 22 uh, verses in there. Um, so that's one significant difference about these two things. The other thing is that all throughout these descriptions, you have keep having a reference back to Cyrus and a reference back to Darius, these kings of Persia that are over uh, over Jerusalem and over the uh, um, uh, over the building project. And so it's almost like there's this cloud above the building of this reminder that you are not your own country and you don't have your own king. So that's kind of the, the next blank there is that. It's a reminder that Israel does not have their own king. Uh, there's always somebody that's looking over their shoulder, always somebody that's in the power over them. Whereas whenever the tabernacle and the temple was built, there was definitely a king. <clears throat> in the tabernacle, God was king. God was sovereign. And the temple, uh, Solomon was king, but there was an understanding that still God was uh, in charge there. Or God was in the mix there. Um, but there's this idea that there's a, a ruler over that group. And then the last thing, uh, is the biggest difference is the reference to God's presence, okay? And I'm going to kind of leave you hanging on this one. Uh, the biggest difference is the reference to God's presence, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later, all right? And so uh, so that takes us all the way through um, uh, kind of the story of Ezra and, and, and Haggai there, some of, some of the introduction to Haggai. Uh, with the end of Nehemiah, the end of Nehemiah is the chronological end of the Old Testament. So even though it happens kind of right there in the, uh, before, even before the middle of the Old Testament, you know, it, it happens after uh, um, you know Joshua, Judges, and all those kind of those books. Um, it happens right there in that mix. It is actually the chronological end of the Old Testament. And so, get, when you get to the end of Nehemiah, which a lot of scholars believe that Ezra and Nehemiah is one book, they'll they'll call it Ezra slash Nehemiah. They think that was probably one put together. Um, it is the chronological end of the Old Testament, and it ended around 430 BC. So that's about whenever Nehemiah ends. So there's a 400-year gap um, between what happened there at the end of Nehemiah and the beginning of the New Testament. 
you know, with the New Testament talking about Jesus' birth. And so in that 400 years before the New Testament, there's a lot that still went on. So let's kind of go through this real quick. The ruling kingdom over Israel changed many times. And so um, there was, you know, a lot of different, it wasn't just Persia all the time and it wasn't just Rome all the time. Um, but you had uh, different people that came in and, and kind of conquered that area. Uh, finally, um, there came a, uh, 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 an emperor that came in and he just really desecrated the temple. Um, he uh, uh, set up a, he, he declared himself as a god uh, to be worshipped and he came in and desecrated the temple. He set it up the temple in Jerusalem as a temple to Zeus and he sacrificed a pig on the altar and all that kind of stuff and that really got the Israelites that were there fired up. And so um, there was a group of the ruling class, the Levites, uh, under this guy named Matthias, um, and they rebelled um, against against them. And the leader of that group was called Maccabeus. You know, probably heard of first, second, third, fourth Maccabees in the um, in the apocryphal literature. And so that was Maccabeus. He was one of the sons of this of this leading Levite. And so he led a revolt around 164 BC. Um, Maccabeus, that's how you spell it. That's for your blank there. Um, so Maccabeus led this revolt in 164 BC, and finally, once again, the Jews had control over Jerusalem. So they didn't control all of Judea, but they controlled Jerusalem and where the temple, uh, where the temple was, that the second temple. And so they regained the control of Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. You know, they cleanse it, they purify it, and they set up what was referred to as the Hasmonean Kingdom, uh, because this group, Maccabeus's family, was from the Hasmonean line of the Levitical priesthood. And so they set up a Hasmonean kingdom, which basically was a combination of priesthoods and kings. And so you had religious and civil government put into one place, which if we look through history, we see that's always a problem. <laughs> and so it became corrupt. Uh, it became got to where it was a power struggle, and it was more about uh, power and prominence rather than worshiping God. And they eventually come to a point of civil war uh, where you've got two groups wanting to follow two different people. And um, around 63 B.C., one of those groups aligns with the Roman general Pompey, and he comes in. He helps them defeat the other group that was holed up in, in the temple. They go in, and they slaughter the entire group of following that other group. was. Josephus tells us was about 12,000 people. Um, they just slaughtered them there in the temple complex. And so about 63 B.C. is when Pompey comes in, um, and uh, Rome officially gains control of Jerusalem. And so they become the, the ruling power there in, in Jerusalem. And then skip forward a few more years, and at 40 B.C., Herod the Great is appointed king over Judea. And uh, Mark Antony helps him to solidify kind of his rule there in that area. Um, so that kind of gets that very quick rundown of what happened between Nehemiah and Matthew chapter 1. You know, it's, how, it's 400 years compressed there in, in a very brief period of time. And so we come to Herod the Great, and the temple then got, in Jesus' time was known as whose temple? Well, Herod's Temple, right? We, we refer to it as that a lot of times in the back of your Bibles. Back when we used to have maps and stuff, you know, they would have pictures. Sometimes it was Solomon's Temple, but sometimes it was Herod's Temple. And uh, if, if you're over there in Jerusalem um, and you see images of the temple, uh, you know, models of it or pictures of it, a lot of times it's Herod's Temple. It's not Solomon's Temple that they really uh, revere or honor. And that's because Herod's Temple far outweighed uh, the grandeur of Solomon's temple. And we think about how Solomon's temple was just magnificent. Herod's uh, dwarfed, made made Solomon's temple just dwarfed over it. And so, uh, so let's talk about Herod's temple a little bit. The first thing that's interesting is that Herod actually had to demolish the second temple to build his temple. 
<laughs> Remember, the second temple was smaller than, than Solomon's, wasn't near as grand, wasn't near as magnificent. So Herod said, hey, I got to clean, I got to make a clean slate before uh, we can we can do this. And uh, Josephus tells us that the Jerusalem, the, the Jews there didn't really trust that Herod was going to do it right or he was going to continue to build it. So he actually amassed all the building supplies first and then be, tore it down and then began building this, this other temple. Um, talk about a few comparisons. The tabernacle, do you remember how tall it was? Look on your page, it's right there. Fifth, no, gosh. No, it's 15 feet high, okay? So the, the tabernacle is 15 feet high. Solomon's temple was 45 feet high, so he, you know, tripled it, you know, to make it 45 feet taller. How tall do you think Herod's temple was? 90. Close? No. Anybody? 30. What? 30. No. 172 feet high. 172 feet high. If you take the cubits, uh, Josephus describes it. There's really nothing about the construction or the details of Herod's temple in the New Testament. No, don't, nobody cares, right? Um, but Josephus has detailed descriptions of it. He says, how whatever the cubits worked out to is 172 feet high. Just to put that into perspective, the Dome of the Rock, it's there now, is 112 feet high. So, you know, you, you add another 60 feet to that. And if you've ever seen Jerusalem, you look at a picture of modern-day Jerusalem, what do you see towering above everything? That Dome of the Rock. I mean, it's sticking out there. So you imagine the temple would be another 60 feet taller than that. Um, to put it in something that we've been close to, if you've been to the ballpark at Arlington, that's a, the, from the from the sidewalk to the topest, the highest uh, canopy there covering the ballpark, it's 114 feet. So you add another 60 feet to the ballpark at Arlington. And that's how tall the temple on that Temple Mount was built by King Herod. That's an amazing architectural, whatever, you know, feet, building feet, especially for that day and time. I mean, just massive how, how high that was. And so, um, so this was a grand thing, and we'll talk a little bit later about some of Herod's building projects. Um, another thing that's kind of interesting, uh, remember the tabernacle? God gave specific direction on how to build it, uh, what it was supposed to include in the holy place, in the most holy place. It's supposed to have the seven lampstands, supposed to have the incense altar, the showbread, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure, Rusty, last week, did you talk about uh, how, how uh, Solomon furnished his temple? bringing those yeah. kind of things up a couple weeks ago. Ten tables. Yeah, how they had ten, yeah. ten no tables of showbread. Yeah. yeah, and ten lampstands and all that kind of stuff. Well, how many do you think Solomon, I mean, how many do you think Herod did? One. One. He went right back to what the God commanded in Leviticus, which is kind of interesting. You'd think that Herod would try to overdo it, but he actually went back to some of the original descriptions of, um, of uh, what was uh, presented there in Leviticus. He had... One lampstand, one showbread, one incense altar. Had the incense altar in the holy place instead of the most holy place. Um, he, uh, so he did it right. Instead of having doors, remember on Solomon's temple, they had big, huge doors that opened up from the outside and from the holy place. Uh, Herod went back to curtains. And that's why we know that whenever Jesus died on the cross and he said, it's finished, and he breathed his last, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. Uh, one interesting thing is that there's two curtains. Uh, there's never any description that would, um, there's not like a, a word that describes one differently than the other one, you know, like exterior or interior or anything like that. And so we don't know which uh, curtain was torn. And I've always just kind of thought, well, obviously it was the one between the Holy of Holies to demonstrate separation of between, you know, God and man and stuff like that. Uh, the book brought up a point that it could have been the out one, outside one to show that now all people on the outside are welcome inside, you know, could have been either way because in that temple 
really there was no Ark of the Covenant, so there was no presence there. So anyway, just kind of something interesting. It could have been the outside curtain. We don't really know. Could be both. Who knows? Um, and so the uh, uh, so so Herod's temple was furnished really more like God described in Leviticus, uh, unlike what Solomon did. And then finally, Herod expanded the Temple Mount complex. So if you've seen that picture before, you know where the the temple's in the middle, and you've got all this patio patio area basically. That was 35 acres that he built. And when we were there, man, you can see, I mean, this is a massive area. These stones are huge. The walls are huge. It's just, it's really incredible. And uh, what's really neat when you're there is you see down here the old stones, you know, where, where this was probably put there with Herod, and then it was destroyed, and then somebody else built on top of it. And there's all these different layers uh, where people have built up. But he had expanded it to about 35 acres, which is big enough for 24 football fields. So that's about how big that area was, just a massive um, area. So that's kind of a comparison between the uh, uh, the, the temples. Um, but let's talk about the, the corruption a little bit because uh, you had this priesthood that took took place or you know took control, and this was the priesthood that was there whenever Jesus was around. It was the same kind of same kind of priesthood. Now um, Herod what Herod died in four BC. Okay. Now what does that tell you about our our time our breakdown of, of time whenever we say before Christ and after Christ? If Herod died in four BC, was Herod alive whenever Jesus was born? Herod the Great? He was, right? Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem because Jesus was, he found out that Jesus was born. So um, we don't know the exact time frame there. The wise men didn't come to the manger. They came later, <laughs> they came later on. Um, but so Herod, so Jesus must have been born somewhere 4, 5, or 6 B.C. Um, in order for Herod to accomplish slaughtering the babies there in, in uh, Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. He, he he doesn't he gives doesn't give glory to God, and so he dies of worms. Yeah. And so we don't know exactly when that time frame is, but we know that Jesus was born before one A.D. or A. Yeah, A.D. Um, and so um, so the priesthood under Herod was selected and appointed by Rome. If you wanted to be the high priest, then you had to pay enough money to Rome or be in tight with the leaders of Rome. That's how you got to be the high priest. Does that sound like something that come out of the Old Testament? No, I don't remember that being in there anywhere, right? <laughs> that the, the emperor shall uh, select the high priest? You know, I don't think that's there. But that's how it worked then. And, and actually from 4 B.C. to 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, there were at least 28 people who were high priests because it was up for bid. It was up for the highest bidder. And um, uh, Annas, Caiaphas' family, uh, was a very prominent Levitical family, and they had a lot of wealth. And, uh, and so they actually had it for a long period of time, and they had it whenever Jesus uh, was uh, uh, crucified. And just another thing that's kind of interesting is that the high, Josephus tells us the high priest's clothes, you know, the ephod and all that kind of stuff, they were kept in the Antonia Fortress, which is that fortress right outside the temple complex that overlooked all of the temple and the temple uh, courtyard and everything. Uh, whenever Paul is attacked by the Jews late in, in Acts and they try to kill him and the Roman soldiers come down a, a stairway, grab Paul and take him back up, that's that fortress they would have been uh, taking him up to. Um, so that fortress there just kind of to remind all the Jews, hey, you know who's in charge. <laughs> we've, got the highest, we've got the highest point here on this area. We can come right down here and take you out just like that if we need to. And so they're kind of reminding these priests who held the power um, in uh even though they were the high priests, Rome still held the power. And so we talk about Herod the Great. Okay, now, Herod the Great was a lunatic. 
I mean, he killed people. He, uh, one of our things our tour guide said is that you did not want to get invited to a pool party at Herod's house because most of the people that he executed had accidental drownings. And um, he, was, he, he was notorious for having people drown at his pool parties. <laughs> and that's how, that's how he did away with people because you could track poison. You could track if somebody was executed or something like that. But if they just happened to drown, oh, well, it's like, here, go have a pool party with some of my soldiers. That's a bad idea. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, so Herod the Great killed, I mean, he killed his, his sons and his wife because they, he thought they were trying to plot against him to take his throne. Um, he killed pe- anybody who was potentially against him. So why is he called Herod the Great? Well, he's called, referred to great because of his incredible intelligence and his building expertise. His incredible uh, intelligence and his building uh, expertise. Um, the Jerusalem Temple Complex was the largest and most well-known all over the Roman Empire. Um, there were some temple buildings that were larger, but there was no expansive space like that dedicated to a temple that was, that was as grand as the temple in Jerusalem. And so it was, it was Herod's Temple Complex in Jerusalem was well-known and well-respected all over Jerusalem. And he was considered to be one of the greatest builders of Rome which is a neat thing because we don't get that from the scripture, you know. We, they don't go into that because it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's really neat when you look at history and, and you think that Herod, this wasn't just some little king. Because Herod Antipas, the, you know, the Herod that we see later, he's kind of just a little puppet. He didn't, he's, he's there, but Herod the Great's kingdom has been split up among his three sons that are still alive. And, and so Herod Antipas, is, you know, he's, not, he's a nobody. Herod the Great, though, was one of the most respected regional kings in all of the Roman Empire, uh, power-wise, and um, was actually a very good uh, friend of Caesar Augustus, and most of his building projects he named for Caesar Augustus. And so he builds these temples to other gods in Sebaste, which is a another, another language, I should have written down which one, but that's basically Augustus in a different different dialect. Um, Caesarea, which you know comes from Caesar, uh, so Caesarea Philippi, which is up in north area, where he builds a temple. Uh, Peneus, uh, he built palaces and fortresses in Caesarea Maritima, Herodium, Masada, Sebaste, and Jerusalem. Let's show you a few pictures of some of these. This right here, remember, this is that drone footage, uh, that aerial shot of the temple you know, that we had from, uh, I think this is probably around 50 AD that they took this shot. Um, and just, I know that some of y'all are thinking now they didn't have drones back then. But while I was in Israel, I found a older drone shot before they had black, before they had color. This is when an older drone footage they took when it's still in black and white. Y'all don't believe me? This was sitting right there in the gift shop at the Temple Institute. So this has to be original. Right? <laughs> no, that would actually be Solomon's Temple right there because it doesn't have the porticos and, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, okay, I can't trick you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that say U.S. government property? Is that what that says? Because they're spying on them, you know. Uh, so anyway, no, that, but that was that was Herod's temple right there, um, and this portico right here is, is just mass a massive uh, the one that's called Solomon's portico right here on the edge, um, just a massive structure, and uh, I think they said that this whole um, that whole portico area from you know that goes on all three sides uh, that just in itself covered uh, can't remember if it was nine or five but nine or five acres can't remember what the book said I mean just a massive uh, complex the the columns there on the base, they, Josephus said it would take three men to wrap their arms around it. That's how big they were, which made the diameter of those things about five feet in diameter. Um, and there was, you know, hundreds of those columns. And so 
It's just a massive structure. This corner right here, which is the southern corner, that's about 167 feet right there. Um, that's uh, that's in that um, in that corner. Just a huge thing. And that that over there is that Antonius Fortress that you know where they would be overlooking the complex. So, so this is just one of his major projects. Um, this was another one. This is called Herodium. Uh, this is outside of Jerusalem, and uh, this is just one of his many palace fortresses that he built. It's built into this hill and this mountain. You can still see the ruins there today. Um, but this was a, a massive structure, well built and well defended, and uh, it looks like it's about you know two stories high. But it actually goes into the mountain, and this is a cutout of what it what it would have looked like then. You see these these different levels. I mean, four four stories there basically with this fortress all around it. Just an amazing structure that he just built on the top of this mountain. Um, and this is one of the few things that uh, he built that wasn't, there wasn't anything there originally. He wasn't building on top of something. This was a brand new, uh, brand new construction. This right here is uh, Caesarea Maritima. It's out on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, he built all of this. This is an artificial harbor that he built, um, you know, to, to make it to where ships could come in on a safe place. But I mean, he, he had to reach out there and grab the sea, basically. I mean, just an amazing uh, archaeological... I don't know how to say that word. I tried to say it twice tonight. Maybe I'll get Stephen to say it for me. <laughs> architectural. There we go. Architectural. An amazing architectural feat that, that he did to, to build this, this place. Um, this is a model of uh, Masada, uh, and it doesn't really do it good justice, but this is basically a model of the ruins that are left there now. Um, we went, we went there uh, whenever we were there. Um, but like, uh, you know, this right here, these little areas right here, that's just the outside wall. So you think about, you know, how wide the wall is, as wide as this room or something like that. You know, that's, that's about what this wall would be. So you can see how massive this area is up here. And this was um, uh, just a, a huge place. And it's at the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is over in that area. Um, so there's not fresh water. It's in the desert. I mean, it's just, it's an awful place to live. And so... Um, uh, the story goes is that when Herod got recalled back up to Rome at some point, he put his family here um, to try to keep them protected. Um, and while he was gone and on his way back, they almost starved to death and, and ran out of water. But at the last moment, a rain came, filled up their cisterns, and they were stayed, they kept alive. And so he decided that he was never going to, the Masada was going to be a place that would never run out of food, never run out of water, uh, which is a big feat to say when you're out in the desert. But what's interesting is right through these gullies, right here on either side, all the runoff water from Jerusalem comes flooding through those gullies and down to the Dead Sea. And so in the rainy season, water is just pouring through those gullies. And so he built a, a system of dams and pressurized release things that when the water would come through, the, the water would flow up into these cisterns that were about halfway up the mountain. And then his servants could get the water the rest of the way up. And so... Uh, so Masada became a place that never ran out of food, never ran out of water. And though even though this was in the desert, they said that this whole top area was basically a garden. Lush, had crops, had trees, had all, you know, all kinds of stuff up there. So they could you could live up there and nobody could capture you. And so if you've ever seen the movie Masada, um, there's, a, there's a movie, it's a six-part series or something. I don't know, it's a long movie. Uh, but it's about that story, the story uh, after AD 70, uh, when the last holdout of the Jews uh, were, had all escaped here to Masada, and there were thousands of Jews living here, um, and the Romans came to, to take them out, um, the Romans had to basically build a ramp up to Masada to get to them. Um, but the Jews were fine because they were up there. They had water. They had food. You know, they had. They were okay. 
And so it's a really interesting fortress up there. One of the cool aspects of it, which is not on this side, it's on that, that far end down there, was what was called uh, his hanging, hanging palace. And this was, his, this was his personal palace that was built into the side of the hill. And um, whenever we're up there, I mean, there's still some of these ruins there and everything, but you see bathhouses and um, you know, cisterns and mosaics. I mean, it was an elaborate palace that he had built out here in, in the desert, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, really amazing thing. Um, this is something, this is called the Sanctuary of Pan. This was built in Caesarea. Uh, and uh, this was a, a worship to the god Pan. Um, What's interesting about this, what do we talk about on Sunday during Bible study? Do you remember what Jesus was talking about and what he said about the gates of Hades? We talked about this this, this Sunday morning. Um, well, this area right here is where Jesus went to. He said he went to Caesarea Philippi, and as he was talking to his disciples, he said the gates of Hades will not prevail against the kingdom of heaven. You know, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, this right here, this spot is referred to as the gates of Hades. So this... this uh, temple. See that little hole back there behind that, that one temple? Um, that's that right there. That's referred to as the gates of Hades because in that day and time there was water, a natural spring that just gushed out of there and flowed down through that through that temple and, and out. And so uh, they did sacrifices, you know, human sacrifices, animal sacrifices here, but this was referred to as the gates of Hades. And so that was the backdrop to Jesus saying those words. Um, you know, this pagan temple, you know, even something that's pagan and and uh, awful is, you know, a place of human sacrifice and stuff like that and, and sexual worship. Um, you know, those things cannot prevail against the gospel. And so it's really interesting. You know, we, we talked about it on Sunday, and I was telling our class the Sunday before, that's where I was, was right there in that place. And Brother David was telling us about it and everything. It's, it's pretty neat. So uh, anyway, this is kind of what it, this is what it looks like today. So it's all, all, that's, all that's left of it. But he built that. Um, and so that, that's kind of the greatness of, of Herod's, Herod's building. So you, so you can see why he was called Herod the Great. And that's just, the, that's just about half of the things that he's known for, for building. Um, and so uh, some amazing structures that, he's, uh, that he has built. Well, let's talk about this last thing, uh, no one home. If you remember the, with the building of the tabernacle, the focal moment of the building of the tabernacle is whenever God's presence came down and dwelled in the tabernacle. All of it was for nothing if there was no God's presence. And so that was kind of the focal moment. And then the same thing with the temple. Even though the temple was really about Solomon and his greatness and him his ability to build a great place, uh, even for Solomon, it would have been all for nothing if God's presence hadn't come down and, and dwelled the temple. So that's kind of the crowning moment of Solomon's building program is whenever God's presence comes and, and dwells in the, uh, in the temple. Well, there is never any mention of God's presence entering the second temple. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament is there ever a indication that the, the presence of God as experienced in the Old Testament comes and dwells in the second temple. Um, there's no indication that the Ark of the Covenant was ever put there or that anything resembling the Ark of the Covenant was ever put there which demonstrated you know, God's presence was supposed to be the, the footstool sort of, of his presence. So there's never any mention of, of God's presence entering um, that second temple. And so, um, so there's nobody. So basically whenever it comes to, to God's presence being there, uh, there's no one home. Uh, but God had given the, the Israelites a promise, and uh, it's found in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 28. Um, and he promises that his, uh, he tries to encourage the exiles, and he, he promises them that his spirit would still dwell among them. And so it says this in verse 26 through 28, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, 
give you a heart of uh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to uh, to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Uh, I think I, I went down to, to verse 29. And so that was kind of a promise that he had given them. But God also tells the people who is, uh, uh, who is building the temple uh, in Haggai 2, 1 through 9, you know, the, they build the temple and they're discouraged somewhat because it doesn't have anything close to its original glory. Um, but God tells them that, that the glory of the present house will be gl- greater than the glory of the former house. So you think about that to them. You know, how, how is that going to come about? Because Solomon's temple was far greater than this second temple. But this is what God tells them, uh, Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, this prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with the glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So God gives them a promise. He says, first of all, my spirit will be with you. You My spirit is is here in this place with you. But trust me, that the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And so you think about that. how in the world could that possibly be? And we know that the only reason that, that is, that's, the, that's the case is because Jesus Christ eventually entered the temple complex. Now, we know that Herod had already destroyed this building and was built another one, but whenever Jesus entered the temple complex, the glory of the Lord once again came into, into the temple and, uh, in a much greater way uh, than had ever been before. And so that's the way that we know that the glory of the second house was greater than the glory of the first house. But what that did for the Jews is that, is that kind of created then a, a messianic expectation. There, there's an expectation that the glory and the presence of God is going to return to the, the temple. And since they never saw that, if they missed the Messiah, they've never seen that, then that means that even today there's an expectation that the glory of the Lord is going to return to the temple complex. You go there today, you go to the Western Wall, the men and women are still there at the Western Wall because that's as close as they can get to where the temple originally was. And they're praying, they're begging, they're pleading for the Messiah to come. And they get as close as they can. We were there and just, they put their forehead against that wall uh, to get as close as they can to, um, to where that temple complex was. So they're still striving to, to get there. And so that kind of brings us to uh, a little bit of extra stuff that I want to show you guys tonight. Um, there's a there's a there's an expectation of a third temple, and uh, I want to show you um, some uh, uh, some videos about this tonight. Um, the uh, there's an expectation of a third temple, and there's a, uh, an institute called the the Temple Institute, and they are in the process. They've already built all the implements 
that are required for the temple, the menorah, the, the bread, and all this kind of stuff, all the things that the uh, priests need to blow the trumpets and announce the temple, and everything that they need in order to dedicate and function in the temple, they have already built. And they have it ready to put in place as soon as they have a building, basically. Um, and they've already began to amass the materials that they need in order to build this. Um, they claim to know the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, they, they believe, they, they say that, uh, that there were rooms underneath Solomon's temple, and when, um, uh, when the king knew that uh, the temple was going to be destroyed and overrun, that they hid the Ark of the Covenant down underneath the temple, and then the temple was destroyed over it. And they believe that it, they, they say they have found it, and it's still there, and, but they're just leaving it alone for right now. <laughs> and so who knows if that's true or not? I was, somebody asked Brother David, and he said, yeah, it's true that they say they know where it is. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, they claim to know where it is, uh, and they have an expectation. Their expectation is to rebuild the new temple on the Temple Mount, which would require... Uh, theoretically, the removal of the Dome of the Rock and the removal of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, which would pretty much start World War III, uh, which might just turn into Armageddon. Who knows? But but that's that's what it would take. Now, if you've read Brother David's latest book, The Cloud Strike Prophecy, anybody read that? It's a good book. You hear that, Brother David? I'm putting a plug in for your book. No, just, uh, but uh, uh, it's a good book, and and the theory that Brother David goes with is one that's that's a, a current theory too. Is that the Dome of the Rock's not actually on the place where the Temple Mount, the Temple was built. That the Temple was actually, you know, 50 or so yards further down because the Dome of the Rock does not line up with the Eastern Gate. And so there's a theory that since it doesn't line up with the Eastern Gate, that if you go down a little bit further, you'd actually get where the original Temple was. But anyway, um, so I want to show you these couple of videos, okay? We've got, uh, yeah, we've got enough time to watch both of them. Um, so this first one uh, is the blueprints and computer animation of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the uh, meat ping. Yeah, meat ping. That's got a GPS locating device. It's tiny, so you can stick it on can't, your I can't kids, even, I can't even your mute pets, it. Your bike. Your okay, so now y'all know about ping. You can put it on your pets and your kids and your bike. Okay. Uh, anyway, this uh, the uh, the Sanhedrin chamber. So this is where the uh, basically the the chief priests and all those kind of people would would meet together. And this for the and Solomon's temple was just outside, uh, I believe for Solomon's temple, was just outside that area, and that's where all the priests kind of hung out and met and did their thing. So this is their expectation for building um, the Sanhedrin chamber. So watch this real quick.
think you've seen seen that. And so that's they you know they already have plans and everything in place to build build these places. But then look at this. This is even more incredible. Sorry about commercials. No, I was watching it earlier. Let me start over again. This is actual plans that they have for building the third temple. It's got doors on it. So who's, who are they modeling it after? So, uh, it's pretty interesting. I didn't hear. I haven't heard anything about that, but I guess that's a possibility. Um, seems like it'd be hard to get away with that and not make noise. <laughs> but, uh, but either either way, uh, there's another video. We don't we don't really have time to to show it, but there's a video called "The Kids Are Ready," and it shows all this, you know, kids and 
playing around, and there's an old man reading his reading his Torah and everything, and and the kids come around him and they look off to, towards the Temple Mount, and there's cranes, you know, and stuff building the temple on top and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, what does what does this mean for us? Well, we know that if they do build this third temple, that it's not the presence of God as they expect the presence of God to indwell it is is not going to be there, even if they do have the Ark of the Covenant. You know that that covenant is gone. Um, you know the 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 well that covenant is not gone. The God's still their people, uh, but the covenant of you know hey if I'm going to be here in your presence. I'm going to live here in this tabernacle. You know that that's gone. Jesus has come. He's he is dwelling in His temple now. You know which is us, and so you know we know that that's not going to change because they they built a temple. But what is interesting about this to to me and whenever you sit there and you're the the Temple Institute is a hundred yards from the Wailing Wall, and they've got the menorah sitting outside there, and uh, maybe longer than that, but it's it's close to the to that western wall. And when you see the Dome of the Rock up there, and you see all the Jewish people worshiping down or praying down at the Wailing Western Wall, and then you go in and you walk through this whole uh, series of rooms where you see all these things that they've built, and where they talk about how we are going to build this, we're going to this is for this, this is for this, this is the altar. You know all these things. It almost puts a, it almost puts a weight on your soul to think, man, this, this could actually usher in the presence of God in a way that these Jewish people have no understanding, <laughs> or no realization. Because if they built that up there, I mean, that would literally be World War Three <coughs> between the Muslims and the Jews, and um, and uh, you know that could, that could be the beginning of the end. That could bring in Jesus Christ right there and bring in the presence of God in a way that uh, the Temple Institute is not expecting. And so what that tells us is that, you know, we as believers, we need to be more diligent than ever because if this is reality, if they really do have these things ready, if they really do think, if they really do know where the Ark of the Covenant is, and if they really do have plans to begin building this temple, then uh, the end could be, the end, the end of times could be coming quicker than we think. So we need to be diligent about reaching out to lost souls and bringing them into the kingdom. We need to make sure that we're doing what we have been called to do as a church and as individuals, and serving the Lord with all that we've got. Um, because I think when you watch videos, it's interesting. But when you go there and you see that they are preparing, it's it kind of puts it in a whole new light. Um, what's interesting is in the tour, they have a model of the menorah, but the actual menorah sits outside in a case in a, a wall of glass so that everybody can see it. It's almost like, hey, for all you people walking around, just... Pay attention. <laughs> we're getting ready. It doesn't matter what's right over there on top of the temple. We're getting ready. And this, we're just going to put our solid gold menorah out here where y'all can see it. And uh, don't forget, there's a guy in the corner with an AK-47. So. <laughs> Maybe not, whatever, AR-15. So anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. So uh, we just need to be diligent, you know. The presence of God lives right here, and we need to share that presence with anybody uh, that we can. Yeah. They've got a complete PowerPoint.